News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Macias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change that our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Fake news stops here. This is my new mug from the Texan. And uh, for those of you who would like to have a mug like mine, you can go to the Texan.news and uh, subscribe sometime before the end of the year. And you're going to get one of these super cool mugs uh, that will make all your friends and your family jealous, and it'll be awesome. Um, that goes into today's conversation because I got to sit down with Brad Johnson, and he is a reporter at The Texan, and he did an in-depth article series on healthcare in Texas. Three different pieces, each like 2,000 words, so if you actually want to read 6,000 words like I did regarding our healthcare policy and healthcare in Texas, you can go to the Texan.news, but you could also just take the next 45 minutes and listen to my conversation with Brad so you can get an update uh, for yourself. It's a little, I guess it's maybe a little bit more entertaining route to go for those of you who would rather listen or watch this than you would go on and read. Um, but I've been a big fan of the Texan from the beginning and been telling you all about them. And so uh, I read these this series of articles and thought it'd be a really good conversation to bring to you. Also wanted to give you a quick update before we get to that conversation. Um, if you go to lutenseus.com, we updated a story over the weekend that James Younger, um, the young boy who is being transitioned to be a girl by his mother at the age of seven, uh, due to a Dallas County judge forcing the recusal of the other Democrat Dallas County judge who ruled in favor of James and Jeff when he when she granted Jeff um, joint conservatorship, thereby giving him veto authority over the puberty-blocking suppressants of his son. Uh, so that is that's happened. That 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 judge was recused, and now as a result of that, uh, a Republican judge, Ray Wheelis, uh, who's the administrative judge over the uh, whole region, now has the case in his hands. And what that means is he's going to assign it to a different judge. Um, so I did a little bit of digging, talked to a couple attorneys, and my understanding is that basically Ray has the ability to assign this to uh, the appointed Republican judge by Greg Abbott. In Dallas County, he could actually take a sitting judge from another county outside of Dallas County, a Republican judge, and actually let them come into the court in Dallas County and, and preside. So he's got a lot of latitude regarding how he handles this case. And so we just brought that story to you. Go to LukeMacias.com, share that story with your friends, especially in the DFW area. Um, we're very hopeful that Ray will uh, you know, do the right thing here, but wanted to make sure that that story was brought to your attention. So you can go to Facebook or our website to read that story and share it with your friends. And without further ado, I want to get directly to the conversation with Brad Johnson. Well, I am joined, uh, episode 46 of the Luke Messiah Show, by a reporter at the Texan, Brad Johnson. Thank you for sitting down with me today, Brad. Thanks for having me, Luke. How has your uh, introductory time to Texas gone so far? Took a little bit to get used to the heat. I'm yeah. from. I'm a Yankee. There you I'm go. from Ohio, so okay. um, this summer was a bit rough, but yes. thankfully this is now my kind of weather. Had you ever been in... Uh, you know, this much heat before you came to Texas? Uh, like, I've been to Disney World a couple times. Okay. And yeah. so one was in the summer, so that was hot. Yeah. But I'd actually never been to Texas before I moved here. I know we're both uh, wearing like vests yeah. right now. And I feel like we're in that weather where it's like I put this on every day hoping that I get outside yeah. and don't feel like taking it off. Yeah. Today is like that day where I'm like, probably don't need to wear this, but I'm going to wear it as like a a hope yes. of bringing colder weather into our community. Yeah. I mean, if I were in Ohio right now and not working, I probably would be wearing shorts. This is yeah. uh, very nice weather right now. There you go. Nothing to complain about. So I brought you on to talk about a series of articles you have done mm -hmm. um, on healthcare in Texas, right? Yes. So healthcare is uh, an issue and policy that gets a lot of discussion. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and so. And rightly so, because it's such a complex and frankly important topic. Yep. Yep. I uh, was recently uh, had a longer conversation with a friend of mine who works in the healthcare industry, Baylor Scott and White, and uh, he just started digging into different complexities of the system and mm -hmm. even opened my eyes to new ideas and 
situations I hadn't considered yeah. before, yeah. right? So I feel like these series you've done, uh, I know a lot of people are not as likely to read, you know, 2,000 word right. articles as they are to read 200 word articles. But uh, I did want to have you in to really dig into these three parts yeah. and uh, people can read the entirety of them at the Texan, which is uh, who you write for. I'm going to, you see our, our little mugs here, right here. So um, I'm just going to, before we get into the long policy discussion, remind people, for those of you on the video, that you may get this mug. It says, fake news stops here. And if you go to the texan.news and you sign up to subscribe before the end of the year, they are giving you these mugs. So they will send you this mug and you can tick off any liberal journalist that you have over to your house or, I don't know, at your place of yeah. business. I'm sure they will not enjoy yeah. it. So. It'll also make a good stocking stuffer. Great stocking stuffer. This is mine. I'm taking this home with me. I bought it. So, uh, yeah, you can't have this one, but you can have others. Um, so let's talk about healthcare in Texas. So the first part, you did a three-part series, yes. right? And they're they're very long articles. I'm just yes. letting people know that uh, for showing up. But if you're somebody who's interested in healthcare policy and you're in Texas or even in another state, to be honest, this is probably worth the read. So let's kind of take them piece by piece. Right. Your first piece was titled, uh, The Status of Healthcare, Many Uninsured Texans Choose Not to Purchase mm -hmm. Insurance. So uh, kind of from the top, why don't you go through some of the numbers of where Texas is at and... Um, you know, what, what your piece brought to light. Yeah, well, first of all, the whole idea for this started when the Census Bureau released their um, uninsured estimates in September. Yep. Um, there was a lot of media reaction, uh, typical mainstream media reaction, focusing on the, hyper-focusing on the uninsured number. Now, it's certainly something to take into account, but they didn't really delve that deep into why it's like that. Um, first of all, the the... the rate that the Census Bureau found was, for Texas, 17.7%. That leads the mm -hmm. nation. Um, it actually went up from the year before a half percent. Um, the national average was 89 So okay. Texas was almost double. Yep. So typical states, about one out of 10, a little less than that, of people are basically uninsured within right. that state. And in Texas, it's particularly high. Right. Yeah. Correct. And so why is that? Um, well, to f figure that out, you have to delve a bit deeper into the details. Um, so the Kaiser Foundation, they kind of parse things out somewhat detailed. Now, it's not as detailed as you could possibly get, and, and there's also gaps in, in what data is collected. Okay. Um, but they take their numbers from the uh, Census Bureau. Okay. Um, but their numbers, based on the year before... Uh, it amounted to there were 12% of the uninsured population in the overall uh, gap or in the overall population for Texas were in what's called the Medicaid gap, meaning okay. if Texas were to expand Medicaid, which they ha they're one of the states that hasn't yet, yep. these people would be eligible. Okay. And I'm going to pull up the, the income numbers. It's based on income and the federal poverty level. Yeah. So if they were to expand Medicaid in Texas, people making $17,236.20 a year would now be eligible. That's um, about $5,000 more than currently are eligible. Yeah. Now, when I first looked at that, I thought of like a family making 17, but I think you pointed out That's that individual. like a yes. family of four making 35 to 36,000 is kind yep. of where that level is, Correct. right? So Absolutely. essentially Medicaid expansion says we're taking the current population that is eligible and increasing uh, the amount of people that are eligible, right? So right. we're taking people that make a little bit more than the current line that is set right. and saying that you too are able to apply for Medicaid. Correct. So 12% of our uninsured people are people who, if we expanded Medicaid, could theoretically then qualify for Medicaid, or are they people that currently qualify for Medicaid? They would be people that would qualify once the expansion happens. Okay. Yes. So meaning meaning currently Texas has not expanded Medicaid. Correct. And if these, they did, these 12% would then get that. Correct. Yep. So I saw there was 35% uh, were eligible for subsidies but had not enrolled. Yes. So that's a, a mix of a couple different uh, types of people. Yep. Um, part of it is just people that choose not to have insurance. And yep. that's a growing trend among um, individuals like yourself. You're part of a cost-sharing ministry. Yep. 
Um, they don't want to deal with the the bureaucracy, the red tape, all mm-hmm. that stuff, and frankly, the high premiums that come along with um, the current mainstream insurance market. Yep. Um, and Obamacare has complicated that even further. Um, the another part of it is, um, no, actually, so the next stat would be thirty eight percent are ineligible entirely. Yeah. And this is part of the overall uninsured population. Yep. And that can be parsed out into a couple different things. One of them, which is a bit a significant contributor to it, um, people that are 400% above the federal poverty level. Got it. Yes. And so that means they're making incomes that um, are significantly higher um, from the FPL, but st- uh, to, too high to be getting the subsidies. Yep. Uh, the tax credits or the just flat out um, you yep. know, Medicaid pay for yep. their their bills. Um, another aspect of it is the is illegal immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, there were uh, I think it was five five I'm trying to find the number here. Yeah, and I think uh, seven hundred fifty nine thousand. Sorry to cut you off, but out of the four hundred and seven hundred four million and seven hundred thousand roughly people in the 2017 numbers in Texas yep. that were uninsured, about 800,000 of those were illegal immigrants. Yep. And so that's like one in, was it one in five that I read uh, in the article? Or? Close to 16%. Yeah. Yeah. So, so 16% of this, this number of people that are uninsured now, and that's actually interesting, an interesting statistic to kind of roll back on because one of the reasons Texas, Texas would have a higher uninsured rate than that of other states is that we are directly adjacent to Mexico. So one would have to assume that more illegal immigrants who cross the border from Mexico don't actually make it out of Texas, right? right? They actually stay within the Lone Star State and then they add to our uninsured Mm -hmm. number. And because they're not citizens, they're ineligible for the exchange. Yep. Yep. And so then there was here, I read somewhere in this article that it said 35% are eligible for subsidies, but they haven't enrolled, right? So Mm -hmm. these are not people that are eligible for Medicaid, but they're eligible for subsidies. Correct. So we have 12% that basically would be eligible for Medicaid if we expanded. We have 35% that are eligible currently for subsidies, something that would give them a little less as far as a payment goes on their insurance. And then you have another bigger group of people who are both uh, slightly wealthier individuals, right? And these aren't uh, wealthy people, right? I mean, in in order to be 400... 400% 400% above the poverty line sounds like you're rolling in dough, but that doesn't no, necessarily it, require you to be... I think I calculated it out. It was around 50000 Yeah. I think it was just shy of that. Yeah. So for a single individual. Correct. Right? Yes. Yeah. So yes. If, you're, if you're a single guy making $55,000 a year, you fall within, you're not going to get any mm-hmm. subsidies on your health care, your, yep. you know, and you've decided not to insure mm-hmm. yourself. And I, I actually calculated this out a little bit more. Um if you were 399% above the federal poverty level, mm-hmm. you would be spending um, on healthcare averages $6,200 less than that person, just 1% above you at 400. Yep. That's a big gap. That's a big amount of money. And relatively, it's not, they're not making um, that much money. And yep. so um, $6,000 is a lot to ask. Yep. Yep. So, so you have a group of people that have said, "Look, making fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, it's just not worth it for me to be insured." Mm-hmm. You have the sixteen percent of the population that are illegal immigrants who are ineligible, uh, you know, to actually get insurance, and then you have these different other buckets that mm-hmm. kind of break it down. So that yes. takes the whopping eighteen percent of Texans don't have health insurance and kind of breaks it down into a realistic understanding yes. of the type of population we're dealing with. This is these are bucketed. These are some middle class people who don't get subsidized at all, who are really making a decision on exactly what they want to spend mm-hmm. money on or right. not, and are saying this is just not worth, the right. juice is not worth the squeeze. And then you yep. have some people who are eligible for the subsidies could get significantly lower health care than that of you know somebody making a little bit more than them, but have just decided to still not enroll on the right. Obamacare exchanges. Right. And then you have a group of people that, you know, one could argue, some would argue, well, these people would be on Medicaid if... Uh, we'd expand Medicaid mm-hmm. in Texas. So 12% mm-hmm. of that could get taken yes. if we would just do and it, that. And it's important to note, though, that Medicaid is also optional. You don't have to opt into it. And so not the ent- the entire portion of that of population would not join. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, now maybe a, a large percent would, yeah. but not all of them. And I mean, just, you know, this conversation is about health care, not health insurance. Right. And I know right. a bit, a little bit of your pieces get into that, but just, yes. it's always important to remember that just because somebody has an insurance card, and I think you write that somewhere here where you go, you know, people are more, more worried about whether they have access to health care than whether mm-hmm. they actually have that card that says they're insured. Yes. Right. Because Americans do not correlate one with the other. Right. And I think that's rightfully so, right? Because mm-hmm. they, they've probably experienced too too often that this card does not mean yes. I get health yes. insurance or health care that I actually But want. I think when it comes to lawmaking, the two are conflated. Yeah. They're put in the same box and um, that relinquishes a lot of um, uh, a lot of aspects of the problem that uh, are not that are otherwise not addressed. Yep. And to go back to the uninsured rate, Texas has historically had a a high uninsured rate. Um, frankly, where we are right now, it's um, cl- between five and ten percent less than where we were for um, most of the the years since 1987. Yeah, um, and part of the reason that the drop happened and that happened in 2010, 2011, 2013 was um, it became illegal essentially to mm-hmm. be uninsured yes you you had to pay uh, a penalty yep to enroll in if you didn't want to enroll in yep. the Obamacare exchange yeah I think I paid one year of penalties uh when that first got enacted and because uh, I only had insurance for like three or four of those months I didn't mm. have insurance I had the I had Samaritan's ministry the cost sharing uh nonprofit that I'm involved in but it qualified right at the tail end of the year. So I had to pay per month or whatever right. that I was uninsured right. for that year. And, um, I did the math and I was like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm definitely getting this. I definitely have this because it's uh, going to cost me more in, in paying to the federal government than it would be to have it. And a lot of people made that decision. Yeah. You weren't even close to the only one. Yeah. And so when we get into why we have low, you know, higher uninsured than other people, one of the things that your first piece also gets into is first of all, uh, what is the cost right. to insuring more people uh, mm-hmm. for the state to really insure more yes. people, right? So I want to dig a little bit into that because, you know, one of the takeaways is, oh, well, these 12% of people that could be insured under Medicaid expansion or any of these other programs, you just make it happen, snap mm-hmm. your fingers, and there we go. We got yes. these people covered. And I think now. it's important to emphasize that that is 12%. Yes, a small portion. Yes, we are letting 12% of the population drive the entire discussion. And let me understand, this is 12% of the population of the uninsured. Of the uninsured, yeah. yes. So not 12% of the population, right. but this is actually... A subset like of a subset. 2.2% yes. of the population, right, right? That, that are uninsured that would be uh, insured. But you also kind of get into the cost... Um, of Medicaid to these different states, mm-hmm. right? And, and the fact that it's also increasing when it comes to its overall share here in Texas. But um, if I read here, uh, it says, some expansion states like neighboring Louisiana have seen costs to taxpayers and state governments double from initial claims. In 2015, Louisiana estimated spending for that state's Medicaid expansion would total around $1.3 billion. Mm-hmm. Last year, that cost was an eye-popping $3.1 billion. And a big part of, of those uh, cost discrepancies were the um, the amount of people that enrolled higher than the original projections. Yep, and we saw that happen nationwide. Yep, uh, I think it was sixty one percent higher projections. The CBO report found um, uh, of people enrolling in Medicaid than were originally that were, projected. Yeah, so basically saying if you open it up to this population, more of them than you think will actually jump yes. onto Medicaid. Yes, and then we'll start using Medicaid, and then therefore will cost the state Correct. billions and three Correct. billion for little old Louisiana, which right. you know I think is smaller than I don't know. Harris County might even have more population than Louisiana. It's possible. Yeah. Uh, it's possible. I don't. Uh, somebody's going to like fact check. <laughs> but the point is that I mean Louisiana is a very small state in comparison to the state of Texas. So right. if you want to take that and and compare it to here, you could be looking at you know. Oh, well over $10 billion easily of increased cost to our state budget if we were right. to say, hey, let's start covering another 2.2% and potentially right. more of, of the population. Um, so, I, I, you know, I know that that is... Now, the Brookings Institute, you mentioned uh, when they got in their, their argument, essentially, and this is what I read, um, that, you know, fed, the feds in Louisiana cover like 63% of Medicaid, mm-hmm. right? So basically, if you look at the overall cost of Medicaid, about 60 plus percent of that's covered by the federal government. But 
um, the Brookings Institute and some other more left-leaning organizations basically said, when it comes to the expansion dollars, the federal government is saying we'll cover 90% of the expansion. Right. Right. Correct. And so that's, that's kind of the carrot at the end of the stick. Oh, don't worry. We'll actually, right. you know, love doing, it. I know one of the things Connie Burton who runs the Texan, this is her, you know, uh, Entity uh, loves saying is that that's still our money. So she always likes to point out people right. go, well, they're going to cover 90%. No, you're going to cover 90% just a different way um, or your grandkids or somebody else. Right. But, but you know, the, the advocates for expansion say, hey, the federal government's going to cover right now 90% of that expansion. So if you right. expand to this, it's okay because the feds are going to write a check and it will get more money into your state, mm-hmm. right, at the end of the day. Now, that is not my understanding is that that 90% is not set in stone, right? I mean, meaning it can change, the federal government can change it at any time. Mm-hmm. And from a financial commitment, the yes. federal government's likely, and you get into this a little bit, where they're not really in a great place when it comes to the financial solvency of Medicaid, yes. right? So one would assume that at some point, we are likely to, in the next potentially 10 years, see yeah. them go, hey, that 90% we were covering, um, it's going to yeah. be a little less than 90%. Yeah, I think it's uh, 2026, it's... Projected to be financially insolvent. Yep. Yep. So, so basically, not too far away. Advocates are saying expand Medicaid because the federal government's going to cover 90% of it. Mm-hmm. But this is a federal government who is going to be insolvent within this Medicaid program by 2026. Yep. And so, my prediction, and it would be that probably around that time is when you're going to start seeing some of these states being told, hey, thanks for expanding Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to be covering 90% right. of your you know, Medicaid expansion. We're right. going to pare that down to 60 or 50% in order to buy ourselves a couple more years in solvency. And then these states are going to have billions of dollars of gaps that mm. they're going to have to fill in some way. Was this article the one you actually got into, the growth of healthcare costs in Texas's budget, or is that... The- yes, Texas healthcare sp- uh, spending. I tracked it from 2011 through yep. 2019. Yep. Um, it grew... Uh, significantly, about 10%, yeah. roughly, um, and uh, uh, it continues to grow. And you know. So we have a roughly $200 billion budget here in Texas, yes. right? It's a little, it's more than that, but but just for easy math. So about $200 billion budget. Um, in 2011, about 18.5% of our budget was spent on health care, right? And Prior to the implementation of Obamacare. Yeah. Yep, and then today that number is about twenty nine percent. So about a you know close closing in on a third of our budget overall is spent on healthcare Correct. within a very large Texas budget. And one would assume that if the federal government is currently covering a good chunk of that sixty five, sixty six, whatever percent in Texas, that uh, if it ever pulls back, that's going to only increase the burden on our state and mm-hmm. it could be easily be in the 40s mm-hmm. at some point in the near future. Yeah, and one more one more aspect of this I want to touch on is there's a lot of questions that are that have been raised about whether uh, Medicaid itself will yield a quality product um, in terms of the coverage, not mm-hmm. now the care you got to you got to separate those out, but in terms of the coverage um, and and there was an Oregon study that found um, there were statistically no difference in the people who were on Medicaid compared to people who were uninsured. Yep. So, and I, I saw that. So, so basically, this this took the same population within income and you know community and said, "There's a group of people here that are uninsured mm-hmm. or you know not on Medicaid, and there's a group of here that are on Medicaid, and then let's follow these people and see if right. one of the populations is more healthy than the other population Correct. over." A given period of time. Correct. And the, c- the conclusion was we're not seeing a healthier product, mm-hmm. right? We're yeah. not seeing individuals on Medicaid be healthier than those people who are not covered by Medicaid. Correct. So when it comes to health care, not health insurance, not health coverage, but health care, mm-hmm. there's really nothing that tells Texas, hey, if you get more people onto Medicaid, you're going to have a healthier society. Right. People are going to be better off, mm-hmm. right? Um, so the second part of your uh, three-part series is, you know, the, the costs continue to increase and and Texans seek better options. So let's mm-hmm. kind of go into, you know, this in general, but give us kind of an overview of this piece. Um, large part of it is it's talking about the difference between um, the estimate-based pricing that the typical hospital um, 
system operates from. Yep. Compare that to more uh, free market outfits that actually list on their websites the price you will pay. Mm -hmm. One thing that really jumped out to me was I looked up a um, a hip replacement. Mm-hmm. And the average estimate, so this it could range much higher, it could range a bit lower, um, but the average estimate for hospital hip replacement was around forty thousand hmm. dollars. And then at the Texas Free Market Surgery Center, it was half that. Hmm. Yep. Now they the latter one does not use insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's cash out of pocket. Um, but also if you don't have insurance and you purchase that, you're not paying a, a monthly premium and, yep. or deductibles. So so this gets into kind of health care versus health insurance, right? So the way it works is if you have insurance, you walk into a hospital, you walk into a doctor's office, you get a set of procedures, you do those procedures, assuming mm-hmm. they're going to charge X amount, and you really don't know what it's going to cost at the end of the day. They kind of estimate, you can call these people, you can figure that out. Right. And then you're going to get some bill. And then they're going to go to your insurance provider or they're going to go to Medicaid and they're going to negotiate payment for that, mm-hmm. right? And they're going to receive payment of some sort. It might be what you actually got charged. It might be more than likely it's going to be 50%, yes. 20%, yeah. 30%. Um, I got I don't want to speak out of turn. I think I was being told by one person that, you know, when we were talking about the, the rate at which the government pays these institutions, it's... Closer to twenty or thirty yeah. uh, percent, private insu- yeah. yeah, and then private insurance is a little higher, fifty, sixty yeah. percent, something. And like the way that. they decide that um, for Medicaid spending itself is they have this scaling system called MIPS, mm-hmm. and uh, doctors get graded essentially by mm-hmm. the government, mm-hmm. um, and they're incentivized to spend less time and money on their patients. Um, that way, they save the government money, and that gives them a higher. Um, a higher grade, which then yields a higher return mm. on Medicaid reimbursement. Yep. yep, yep, that makes sense. And so, um, you know, the, comparing that to uh, a system in which you walk in and say, "I want a hip replacement. Mm-hmm. I need a hip replacement for X, Y, and Z reasons. How much money can I pay you to receive said hip replacement?" And they're going to go, "Well." We can do that for X amount of dollars, yes. right? And so the difference between that interaction, which is how most goods are bought and sold in this right. nation, right? I mean, the vast majority of things yes. you purchase, whether it's the car that you drive or even the house that you buy or all the goods at the market is, who, what are you charging? What are you charging? How much does this cost? Okay, yep. I'm going to buy it here, right? And this is a huge chunk of the expenditures within our economy, within our society, but we really handle the purchase of this good very differently. Mm -hmm. And so the vast majority of these purchases are happening where I'm getting a service from you, you're charging set amount of money, and then you're going to negotiate. Honestly, I don't even know who you're going to negotiate with. I don't know the guy you're calling. I don't know the company. You're going to figure that out. Y'all are going to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And then I'm hoping that all gets covered. Right. Right. And well, sometimes that's it one, will. one part of it is the, the patient usually has no idea how much is actually being paid for yes. the service that they're yes. getting. Yep. Yep. And that that creates an entire lack of transparency, um, which is something that these more free market um, outfits use. And um, they that's what they base their entire model on. Uh, you'd also have to say that if. If you're let's let's look at this from the healthcare provider's perspective, right? If you know you're going to get covered, you're only going to get thirty percent or forty percent or X percent of what you charge. Mm-hmm. You're going to charge more, right. right? I mean, you're going to constantly yes. charge more. The insurance you're companies say, are incentivized to to steer their clients to higher costing um, services. Yep, yep. And so, I mean, if you're the healthcare provider, you're going to say, look. I'm going to charge you 30 grand for this because the truth is I know I'm only getting 30% or I know best case scenario, I'm going to get 60% of these costs. So I'm not going to charge you 20 grand, even if I think that's what you should spend because I know I'm not going to call your insurance company and they're going to say, that seems reasonable. Here's a check for $20,000, right? So instead I'm going to charge a higher number knowing that I'm going to have to whittle this down. Right. The other thing, uh, I didn't see this in your article, but I was, I was looking at, I wasn't sure if you'd look in, looked into any of the uncompensated care, uh, aspects of the reasons for high pricing. Um, I don't know if you've looked into that at all. It'd probably be 
and you mean the amount <clears throat> that the doctors don't receive from what they charge? Correct. That that actually gets. Uh, so I mean, if I if I charge you ten thousand dollars and Medicaid mm-hmm. gives me three thousand, that other seven thousand gets considered within what we call uncompensated care, yeah. right? So uh, you have counties, all these counties and these other places. We talk about uncompensated care a lot that we have to write a bill mm-hmm. for that. Uh, these hospitals or doctors, uh, my understanding is that they have the ability to not fully, but a portion of that also gets written off from a tax perspective, right. from an uncompensated care deal. So that's also going to drive and incentivize them to charge higher amounts because I know you're only going to pay me 30%, but 30% of 10,000 is 3000. And then that other 7,000, you don't pay me 40% or half or whatever. I get to now write off as uncompensated care because I provided you $10,000 of care. I accepted 3000 in payment from Medicaid and the remainder, I'll at least get some tax benefit from it. Right. And I'll get to tell people we provide X amount of uncompensated care to the community. And if I charged you actually what it cost, it would that number would be much lower. Right. Right. So. um, So tell me tell me about a little bit more just about some of the the things that kind of came out of uh, this issue. I know one of the points overall, because this piece got more into the drivers of the increase in healthcare costs in general, right? Yes. And that uh, one of the main drivers it, w- with the Obamacare insurance regulation, you know, the the whole pre-existing condition mandate at the end of the day does cost us more. Yes. We know that that's m- likely the number one driver to the reason that people are paying a lot more in their premiums. Is that an yes. overstated statement, or where where am I? No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, I'm not sure exactly what proportion it would be. Yeah. But um, it's certainly a significant one. Um, especially since, you know, the government foots 90% of the, of the expansion population Mm -hmm. costs. Um, and if we are operating from the estimate based system Mm -hmm. that can go exponentially high, you have Mm -hmm. no idea. Um, so yeah, I think you're, you're right on that. Um, one, one thing that, uh, a different point of view on it that I got was Medicaid expansion, to some hospitals saved them a lot of money because now they had people, um, instead of going to the emergency room, yes. they would go through the normal route with Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not something to discount, totally discount, um, but it's kind of a, it doesn't paint the whole picture mm-hmm. um, because of all the problems with Medicaid and all of the, you know, back to the cost estimates Mm -hmm. um, and then the limited amount of reimbursement. So um, that's one aspect of it that I found um, a different point of view on. Uh, You did get into a little bit of the fact that in Louisiana, it looked like uh, they had an issue when they audited their program where they had several people enrolled in Medicaid that got in um, that we're making, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars a year. So, yes. is there any basically meaning that within the expansion, sometimes the problem is that you actually get a bunch of people on this program that weren't supposed to be on the program? Mm. How is that something that other states you know of have experienced the same problems, or is that kind of specific to Louisiana? What was Louisiana what was, was the worst of them, really? Um, which okay. is why it uh, it was so yep. um, uh, newsworthy. Um, it resulted in 30,000 people being removed. Now, not all of them were making $100,000 a year, yep. but um, that's just that, that's a huge amount of people that, that should not be on the government role that are costing the government a lot of money. Yep, yep. So we have these, we have the kind of insurance model of go consume the good, don't know what it costs, mm-hmm. and then this other person who, I mean, you know, you're playing, paying Blue Cross Blue Shield or you're a member of Medicaid enrolled in Medicaid, but you don't, they're going to talk to somebody over there and they're going to figure out how to pay. Right. And then you have the balanced billing aspect. And why don't we talk a little bit about kind of how that works and what comes yeah. out of that. Balanced bills are often surprise bills that mm-hmm. show up at your door. Um, and it's the difference between what the provider charges you. Um, this is after the estimate yep. and what the insurance company permits based on your personal plan. Yep. And so you have to foot the bill for the difference. And there's a lot, there are a lot of States that are, uh, t- I think Texas is one yep. that is seriously looking at balance bill legislation. Yes. Yep. Um, because there are a lot of people receiving bills that they did yep. not know were coming. Yep. Yep. Um, and then that, 
kind of gets into quite a few people who have really advocated for this direct payment model, yes. right? And that becoming yes. kind of increasingly popular. In fact, I was kind of surprised um, by some of the different people that were that were actually, you know, following following this model. So, what, I mean, what what exactly are they calling that, and how does that model work? The overall model is called direct patient care, okay. and that can um, it can be surgery centers, it can be primary care, it can be specialists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked to a few more people that are in, involved in that in my mm-hmm. third piece on quality. Um, but the entire idea is that we cut out the middleman, mm-hmm. um, we clarify our prices, and not having this is another aspect that I talk about in my third piece, but not having the behemoth hospital system where they're increasingly reliant on data, um, where basically, as they say, uh, you're, you become a barcode as mm-hmm. a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so what these, these primary or these, um, direct care facilities offer yes. is clarity in pricing and more personalized care, mm-hmm. more attention to the patients. So basically with the direct care now, it, it sounded from what you have in your piece here. It sounds like a lot of that's being used by employers, right, for their yes. employees. And yes. so, essentially, employers instead of going the health insurance route, go the direct care route to mm-hmm. say, "Hey, we're in this network, and you, as employees, when you have yeah. healthcare needs, will go directly there. There will be an exact amount, and that will get paid yes. by the employer." Yes. Right. And so the employer's paying as a. Well, most of our our system is employer based. Yes. And that goes back to um, the Great Depression. Yes. Um, And so it's not for the people using the direct care model are not just employers Mm -hmm. for their employees. There are a lot of families and individuals using it. Yep. Um, But by and large, the biggest um, beneficiaries of it are the employers because they are the ones that have these massive um, expenditures, which. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned earlier, the estimates can range so high. Yes. Um, one barbecue place that uh, switched in Texas saved between thirty and fifty percent. Yeah. And I mean, this, ma- was that Rudy's or was that something else? Rudy's. Yes. I think that was yes. Rudy's, right? So uh, no, I saw. Yeah, Rudy's barbecue in Lakeway. You know what's funny is like there's literally a Rudy's a hundred yards from my living location. I go there for. Um, I go there for breakfast tacos sometimes in the morning. Okay. So yeah, I was uh, I was a little yeah surprised that they have shifted to this model mm-hmm. as well. I know, uh, oh, uh, who was it I was talking to? But uh, one friend of mine was was telling me he uh, that there's several people that attribute the big employer shift that happened around the Great Depression to um, the uh, the wage caps that were put on during yes. the New Deal, right? Yes. So basically, you had. For the first time, and, and our nation really has never gone back to this, but for a period of time, you could not pay people more than right. X, right? right? And I believe that was in hopes of getting more people paid, right? Because right. you're like, everyone needs a job, right. so stop paying people X amount. But the problem that comes with that is it was difficult to attract workers. Correct. And so what they did was started offering benefits, what we yes. now know today as benefits. Yes, the main one being healthcare. healthcare. Yeah. And so that was really the moment in time in which we had a shift within our system where people prior to that had their own health insurance. And right. then all of a sudden these employers who were told by the government, uh, yeah, you can't, yeah. you can't pay that guy more than X dollars an hour, probably, yep. I don't know, three bucks an hour, whatever it was in the great depression. They go, okay, fine. Then if you come here, we'll pay for your health insurance. Yes. Cause yes. that doesn't count against us. And now we can attract the workers right. that we were trying to attract. And then all of a sudden this sets a little bit of a precedent that people start going, well, he'll, pay my insurance. Are you going to pay my insurance? Yes. And even when the wage caps go away and people are allowed to get paid what they want, this idea that your employer is covering your health insurance has become a little bit of a norm. Right. Yeah. Right. And the the system before then was actually direct care. I mean, when mm-hmm. you would have a, fa- uh, a family doctor come over to you um, whenever you needed them, um, usually they operated within a community. Yep. Um, nowadays we have uh, we're blessed with a lot of technology mm-hmm. that can help doctors reach more people. This is a big thing in rural areas, mm-hmm. the uh, telemedicine. Yep. Um, but one other aspect of hospital systems that causes um, a lot of prices to spike is something called anti-steering rules. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to um, insurance companies being incentivized because they're paid on commission to go to a place that has a higher rate. Mm-hmm. 
But at the same token, they're also disincentivized by this anti-steering rule from helping their uh, their clients find a lower cost alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, because in the contracts they negotiate with the hospital, in it are these anti-steering rules which prohibit um, insurance companies from shopping around for on behalf of their clients. Mm. And uh, one woman I talked to, Cynthia Fisher, um, she pointed to an example of her, one of her clients, they negotiated a $7,000 birth. And the estimate she was given at a conventional hospital down the road was $42,000. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just insane. Yeah, As, uh, uh, incredible. You'd have a hard time finding those discrepancies right. Right. in any other area. And part of that is part of the the increase. There's a lot of there's different components to it. Part yeah. of it is the incentivization, mm-hmm. but another part of it is the hospitals are so big, and they have to pay all these people to uh, navigate the um, the bureaucracy, the red tape, the regulations. Mm-hmm. That that adds a lot of cost Costs. burden on them, and so they got to pay for it somehow. How do they do it? Distribute it to the consumer. Yep. Yep. And so for these people that are just providing direct patient care, and this is kind of increasing in popularity of these companies that are saying, hey, just go directly to the doctor, pay him. We will pay directly to him, not through any insurance. And we've created a pool of people that all are going to get health care. So we now have access to these direct patient uh, programs. You know, once you cut that out, that person doesn't have to have a staff of people that are just dealing with Medicaid and another staff of people that are dealing with reimbursements and negotiating with all these different insurance companies. Mm. And then all this paperwork to make sure that your MIPS or your PIPs or whatever is, (laughs) you know, high enough uh, so that you're, you know, getting a good enough grade. So you're getting the full maximum. None of that, that's cut out of the equation. Now you just have a healthcare provider providing direct healthcare to a patient and then billing that person a rate at which mm. they're willing to pay. Yeah, and uh, just because it popped in my mind when you said it, MIPS. Um, one, uh, a woman, I think she was the she's the head of the uh, American Medical Association. She testified in front of the Senate and said that in order to get a hundred on her, this was in my third piece. Yep. In order to get a hundred on um, the score, she spent a hundred thousand dollars more than she would have. Mm. And for an individual practice, that is a lot of money, mm. and that goes back to um, that accumulated from her uh, overtime for employees mm-hmm. um, navigating the making sure all the regulations mm-hmm. are uh, are um, kept to and yep. and all this stuff and on a smaller on a smaller level they just can't they can't deal with it and mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of this free market medicine is taking off because a lot of these individual practices just can't afford dealing with the regulations and and trying to keep a good score on the MIPS. Mm. So I want to just dig a little bit more into this steering, uh, you know, the anti-steering stuff. And so essentially what you're saying is it's an agreement between the insurance company and the healthcare providers. What is yes. preventing the steering? The hospital systems, part of the contract. Yes. Um, and I suppose it's a two-way contract because they each have provisions yep. um, as part of the agreement that um, they prevent the insurance company from explicitly shopping around on behalf of their um, their clients They're, for yeah. lower cost yes. um, uh, services Cares. that would be a part of their plan. Yes, does that make yeah. sense? So, so basically, you know, because you show up to a healthcare provider and he says, "Oh, we don't take that insurance," right? So they right. only take certain certain insurance, right? And as part of their agreements with those different insurance companies, there's provisions that they have made sure yes. that the insurance that send them patients, right? Let's say I only accept Blue mm-hmm. Cross Blue Shield and X, Y, right. and Z. So if you're with Blue Cross Blue Shield, I have made Blue Cross Blue Shield in order to make sure that I take them agree to right. not steering their patient and shopping and finding the best rate right. to send right. their patient to. So that can't be part of what the insurance companies do. Correct, correct. And on the flip side, um, the... Healthcare providers, the hospitals, doctors' mm-hmm. offices that are all part of it, they are told you can only charge this much um, by the insurance company for a service. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually it's an estimate. Um, and so they're pretty high because they also uh, take into account the commission that the insurance company wants to make mm-hmm. and then, you know, the profit that the, the hospital wants to make mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, so it, it's a two way street. And um, that it's kind of self-fulfilling 
they um, they each have th- have certain provisions in the contract that are steering clients to these high cost hmm. uh, alternatives. Yep. yep. So the last piece you wrote, tell us a little bit about or a little bit about that piece. So that was on healthcare quality. That was yep. less data heavy. Yep. Um, but there was some data in it. For example, it's a long, this one's a very long piece. Um, so last last year in 2017, hospitals saw 880 million visits. And now that's that's not people. That's mm-hmm. people going. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. people going multiple times. Um, and that's a lot. So what mm-hmm. hospitals have done is they focus on data. And the way the analogy I use is sabermetrics in baseball. They've kind of um, they've gotten rid of the personal human aspect of it, or or much of it as much as they can, yeah. and made made patients into uh, data producers. And they use that data to inform their procedures, what they should focus on, how much time they should spend on patients, um, what kind of uh, um, medicine they should give them, that kind of thing. So I, I spoke to a few different people who have moved into this free market and um, non-third party, meaning they don't use insurance, model. Yep. The, the first one was Keith Smith, who is... He runs the um, the Oklahoma City, I think it's a Surgery Center of Oklahoma. That's what it's mm-hmm. called. But he also started the Free Market Medical Association. Okay. And he was the first guy, did it in 19, 1997, first guy to really make a name for himself doing this. Okay. And it kind of got the ball rolling. They have, uh, I think it was 25, 30 different chapters. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just in the States. Mm-hmm. There's numerous um, practices affiliated with each of those chapters. Mm-hmm. So... They've gained quite a reputation and um, done pretty well for, for themselves. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of patients because of all the problems they've had in the uh, the common mainstream health insurance market yeah. um, that are, like yourself, just going saying, I don't want anything to do with this. Yep. Um, so one of the, the data sets that I saw that has driven people away there was a 2018 study from Johns Hopkins that showed um, that showed mortality rates. Hospitals with with low mortality rates struggled with readmission rates, hmm. and so one aspect of that is they are not giving as much attention to the patient to prevent them from coming back in. Now. These are the, the the top hospitals, the ones that mm-hmm. that you go to when you're sick and dying, mm-hmm. when you have cancer. Um, but they're seeing a significant spike in um, readmission rates because one of them is because um, they are just not they're not prioritizing that as much because of this data driven system. Mm. Um, another study that was uh, done by Johns Hopkins suggested the third leading cause of death in 2016, and I think it has since been repeated, um, or at least close to that, was medical error. And the what the free market advocates are point to is that because you're not as you don't have the personal relationship with your clients as much, you're just reading off, you know, prompts on a screen, um, asking the client questions and, you know, plugging in the answers because it's all data driven mm-hmm. the qu- overall quality is lessened and it's it's hurt by the lack of personal touch from the doctors um one uh, a person i spoke to was chris held she operates an ophthalmology um practice in mm-hmm. san antonio okay. she's a big advocate of this and she is the one who said um, she used to be in regular practice mm-hmm. where she used insurance. Yep. She used Medicaid. Yep. It became too burdensome for her. And she actually had a, an experience herself as a patient that all of that together made her decide in 2015 she did not want to mm-hmm. uh, continue in this. And her experience as a, as a patient was she had breast cancer mm-hmm. and 
while she was recovering from that, the meds they were giving her got mixed up. And when you check into a hospital, they give you a wristband. It's got a barcode on it, which is why she said you're um, basically a barcode. But she was getting a much larger man's uh, medicine. Mm -hmm. And so she almost died from that. And that those are the medical errors that that Johns Hopkins study um, highlights. Now yeah. it's not to say that you're going to get you know third world country yeah uh, yeah care an amazing at system. a hospital yeah. yes um, places like MD Anderson in Houston yep they're all they're very good at what they do yep but we're seeing a trend that is really creating this new market for um, high quality care at the lowest possible price and yep. that is what these uh, free market advocates pride themselves on. Hmm. Um, well, this has been fascinating and I really appreciate you being willing to come in. I know a lot of people, you know, might not uh, have taken the time to actually mm-hmm. read all three of these articles. I'd encourage you to go to, you know, the Texan um, and, and follow Brad. You can read all three of these articles that really draw out all of the numbers and mm-hmm. explain this entire situation and some of these stories. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting because healthcare is going to continue to be a big discussion yep. in Texas, right? Yep. It, it has been every session, but I think with it increasing in the size of what it takes as far as the share of our budget, it's mm-hmm. only going to continue to increase in the conversations yeah. that we have. And one thing to take away from it is money is not the only aspect of this. Mm-hmm. There are so many different facets to it. Um, that really addressing the issues that we see takes a lot more innovation than just, you know, putting money into mm-hmm. it. Um, and, you know, that that uh, is the case in education as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but so healthcare is not the only one, but people really need to um, understand the issue better in order to, you know, vote for their politicians that, that want that actually understand the issue itself. Now that can be on either side, but yeah. it's such a complex topic, and that's why it was so. It's still so difficult to get these down to th- three two thousand word pieces. Yeah, which I'm sorry for people reading. <laughs> I, I understand um, why people would not want to read that, but yeah. um, as a as a topic as complex as healthcare, yep, you can't avoid it. Well, I appreciate you being willing to put in the work to deliver 6,000 words of content on healthcare and uh, at least give Texans the opportunity to go consume that information. Mm-hmm. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining me today, Brad. Thanks I really for having appreciate me, your time. Thank you for listening to The Luke Messias Show. If you value this content and want our message to spread, please consider three of the following steps. Subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Visit lukemessias.com and sign up for our email alerts. You can also visit lukemessias.com forward slash 10 ways, that's W-A-Y-S, and download our PDF that will give you 10 easy steps you can take to join the conservative movement in Texas. Also, follow me on Twitter and visit my Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Luke Macias, Texas. Thank you and God bless.